Ah, good evening and welcome to the Gallery of Curiosities. I'm your host, Osgood Underby. The story I have selected for you this evening is Last of the Spice Schooners by Philip Brian Hall. Mr. Hall is a former diplomat and teacher. Outside work, he has stood for Parliament, sung solos in amateur operettas, rode at Henley Royal Regatta, and completed a 40-mile cross-country walk in under 12 hours. He lives on a quaint farm in Scotland with his wife, a dog, a cat, and some horses. He's also a graduate of Oxford and an eligible author for the 2016 Campbell Award. All in all, quite too respectable a chap to be appearing on a show such as this. To compensate for Mr. Hall's high credentials, his story will be read to you by the disreputable Mr. Vic Mullins, also of Scotland. The Last of the Spice Schooners by Philip Brian Hall One morning, an ancient schooner, filthy, mouldering and riddled with shipworm, was found moored illegally at an out-of-the-way and long-disused old berth in the Pool of London. No one had seen the Ananke arrive. Men whispered to each other that she had stolen silently upriver on a midnight tide while the unmanned wharf lay shrouded in an eerie, impenetrable fog. No one came ashore. No one was seen on deck. Dockers cast nervous glances and kept their distance. Ugly rumours swirled around. The ship was bad luck. She was haunted. Such a fetid relic was incongruous in the late 19th century, among steam tugs chugging busily up and down the great arterial waterway, dirty, stubby coasters with their tail funnels belching smoke into already polluted air, and sleek sailing clippers unloading tea from China or wool from the Antipodes into gaping modern warehouses from which railways would move them onwards. Eventually, Harbour Master Calhoun reluctantly stirred himself sufficiently to send a junior clerk, Barrington Smith, to investigate. Smith was 19 and keen to impress. A Cornish lad of middle height, dark-haired, and blessed with a ruddy complexion brought about by much small boat sailing before his move up to London. He was reluctantly seeking his fortune ashore, where his uncle, the police inspector, had a little influence, rather than a float, where he had none. Smith walked briskly along the wharf, ignoring the hostile stares of dockyard idlers who looked as likely to take his purse as a day's wages. Reaching Ananke, he marvelled that the derelict was still afloat. Salt water and tropical sun had scoured most of the paint from her battered timbers. Barnacles encrusted her copper, and even through the murky water of the pool, long streamers of dark green weed could be seen extending from her keel, trailing downriver with the current. Her rigging was worn and slack. Untidy festoons of rotten cordage littered her decks. Her filthy sails were so sloppily brailed up that time to time they caught the gusting wind, causing the vessel to tug fretfully at her cables, as if anxious to return to the netherworld when she came. Above all, Smith's nose was revolted. Like a slaver back when trade in human livestock was legal, Ananke's stench made the rare passers-by wrinkle their noses and increase their pace. No one was in deck. Smith drew a deep breath, and hailed, Ahoy! Ananke! The ship remained silent as the grave. Ahoy! Ananke! Harbour master wishing to come aboard! There was neither sound nor movement. 
For all Smith could tell, the vessel was deserted, yet if the crew had gone ashore, there would be a gangplank, and there was none. He was reluctant to return and report failure. He needed promotion to make ends meet in the expensive capital of the world's greatest empire, but to acknowledge that he needed help even to contact the master of an aberrant craft would more likely invite ridicule. So, since the crew would not come to him, he decided he must go to them. He called the nearest idlers who had been watching him with lacernous speculation in their eyes. You there, harbour master, I need four men to rig a gangplank. Six pence each for ten minutes. Work. If they were the thieves they seemed, they wanted no trouble with the river police. Pickings in the docks were far too good. A few minutes later, the chosen four were wiping their greasy hands on a shared rack and lining up to collect their pay. Smith handed it out from his own pocket. Maybe it would be an investment if it enabled him to impress. The last and most respectable pocketed the silver and touched his oily cap. Ah, uh, begging your pardon, sir, but you shouldn't go aboard. That un be a plague ship. Smell the reek of her. Likely every man jack of her crew be dead. And their ghosts made fast her moorings? Smith smiled, although his inexplicably trembling knees and less length than his words. A schooner's deck is flush from bow to stern, with no steep quarter deck or forecastle. Access below is by companion hatches fore and aft, although the stench was even worse once he was aboard. Smith had no choice. With a sideways glance at the docker who still waited hesitantly at the foot of the gangplank, he put his handkerchief over his mouth and began to descend. The low berth deck he could not stand erect. A rusting, unlit storm lantern swung from the deck head. There were small doors to each side and larger ones forward and aft. The lesser doors opened on unoccupied cubbyhole cabins, none more than six feet long or four broad, barely adequate for a cot and a sea chest. The forward door would lead to the wardroom and after to the captain's quarters, which usually stretched the full width of the stern. Everything remained silent. Smith knocked at the wardroom door and called out, uh, Harbour master here, first mate, if you please. No response. He opened the door. There was no one there. Closed portals, coated with green algae, lent the light with a cadaverous tinge. At first glance, there was little evidence of anything untoward. The mess table was cleared, crockery and cutlery stowed away, four chairs were gathered around the table, a fifth was by the cabin wall, and a sixth overset. Smith regarded the fallen chair. One leg had been snapped off. A dark stain across the seat spread onto the surrounding deck. He knelt, touched the stain, and sniffed his fingertips. Coagulated blood. Having discovered evidence of violence, he would be justified in leaving the vessel to summon assistance. He decided to go on instead. He had as yet encountered neither threat to himself nor evidence of the whereabouts of the crew. Anyway, the man on the dockside was probably still within call. Forward of the wardroom, the galley was also deserted. The stove cold, ashes left beneath it. A large cleaver lay unwashed and bloody on a badly scrubbed table. In the larder cupboards he found little, and Anke's officers had not been eating well. Smith retraced his steps, towards the captain's cabin, and knocked on the door, expecting no response. Who's there? The shouted challenge brought him up short. Harbour master, sir. Are you alone? I am, sir. Barrington Smith, uh, sent by Mr Calhoun. Aye, right, step inside then, harbour master, and keep your hands where I can see them. No tricks now. 
There's no need to be like that, sir. I'm here on official business. Coming from shadow, Smith's eyes were dazzled by the sunlight streaming through the stern windows that faced him. In front of them, a dark, thick-set figure was seated at a table. As Smith's eyes adjusted, he made out the barrels of two pistols pointed at him. Behind them, a bewhiskered, shaggy-haired man, wearing a dirty, old-fashioned, frilled, white shirt, glowered at him over the lid of a jewel box set on the table. "'Good morning, Captain.' Smith announced himself with more calm in his voice than his heart. Barrington Smith, Harbour Master's office. Mr. Calhoun sends to ask why Ananke has not notified him of her arrival in Bill of Lading. The guns pointed at him were old flint locks, muzzle loading, single shot weapons of a sort not manufactured for thirty years. The man behind him said nothing. Two bloodshot, steel-grey eyes stared at Smith. Sir, you're in the Pool of London. There are a hundred people to hear a gunshot. In any case, you're in no danger from me. All I need is the standard particulars. For himself, Smith had seldom encountered two more persuasive arguments against the levying of a late payment fine. She's not with you, then? She, who, sir? I told you I had no one with me. She, who, sir? The captain parroted. The murderous devil that killed my crew. That's she, who. Uh, sir, I don't understand. You're the only person I found aboard. Could you lower your weapons, please? With reluctance, the captain complied. She's a bored right enough, Harbour Master. She'll be coming for me. I've got her jewels here, in lieu of payment for her passage from the Seychelles, but she'll not get them, sir. Not whilst I draw breath. No one takes these gems away from Abel Sawkins. Abel Sawkins? Smith seized upon the words. That would be your name, sir. Captain Abel Sawkins? He jotted it down in his pocket book. And you command the schooner Ananke of? He made an educated guess. One hundred and eighty tons? One ninety. Of one hundred and ninety tons. Inbound from Port Victoria? Trincomalee. Inbound from Trincomalee. Thank you, sir. And your cargo? Cargo? Why, cloves, son. Spices, can't you smell them? Forgive me, sir, your cargo is quite pungent. I had not taken it for the smell of spices. Supervise the loading myself. First of June in the year of our Lord, 1830. Smith looked up from his notebook. You mean 1880, sir? Young man, I have suffered much, but I retain my wits. The captain gave him a withering look. I keep my log as required by law. Last year, 1830, I say, and a horrific slow passage. Fourteen months at sea and not a man left alive. Save Abel Sawkins. I, but she'll not kill me. If that thing wants me, she has to come through that door, and when she does, I'll put two pistol balls in her evil black heart, so I will. Smith hesitated. Little was to be gained by prolonging conversation with an armed lunatic. For certain, though, Calhoun would want to know whether a woman was indeed aboard. Smith could not easily inspect the sealed holes, but nothing impeded him from searching the crew's quarters. If stay you must, Captain, then I'll bring help as quickly as I can, he said, before gratefully leaving the madman where he sat and returning to the cluttered upper deck. The forecastle berths were all in one large cabin and the bows. They were unoccupied, though hammocks were slung and personal belongings scattered around. Forward a door led to the head. Smith opened it and found no one. Aft, 
Another door probably led to a store cupboard. He walked across to check. At the sound of his footsteps, a muffled thumping began behind the second door. Smith pulled it open, then reeled as an almost young, naked woman fell into his arm. She was bound and gagged, wearing only a man's shirt. A waterfall of blonde hair cascaded over Smith. Heaven be praised, the woman breathed after he fumbled to remove the dirty rag covering her mouth. I feared it was one of those rogues come back to torment me, but I could not bear another moment in that foul hole. With her bonds untied, Smith was uncertain whether to offer further aid or avert his eyes. He blushed furiously. Um, you're safe now, ma'am. Are you injured? Shall I call for a doctor? Oh, thank you, there's no need, she gasped, clasping her arms tightly around his neck. Through the thin layer of cotton, her full breasts pressed against his chest as she struggled for breath. Are you sure all the villains are gone, mister? Uh, Smith. Barrington Smith of the Harbour Master's office. At your service, ma'am. And yes, we're alone on board, save for the captain. Who's out of his wits, I fear? That man is a murderous devil, she exclaimed, struggling to get up. Smith restrained her as delicately as he was able, unsure of whether he could decently place his hands. Uh, hush, ma'am, you're safe. This is the Pool of London. I have but to blow my whistle, and the steam launch of the river police will be here in five minutes. Sir Galahad could not have assuaged the fears of a distressed damsel with more delicacy. Smith felt his chest swell with pride at the role of saviour. London? she breathed. Am I truly home at last? Trust me, ma'am. You're quite safe now, but come, let us find you something more suitable to cover yourself. We must get you ashore, and you can't go dressed as you are. Where are your clothes? Clothes? she repeated, seemingly still dazed. All lost when the Connorsborough Castle went down off the Seychelles. I was drifting in an open boat when a Nanke found me. Smith belatedly registered the absence of ship's boats on the upper deck. The captain claimed his men had been killed aboard, but this evidence suggested abandonment at sea. It did not seem appropriate to question the young lady. The priority must be her well-being. At least, ma'am, you have a shirt. That's a start. Let's see what we can find among the crew's dunnage. He rummaged around the personal items left behind, a pair of duck trousers, a smock top and some thick knitted socks seemed most likely to be of use. Handing them to the woman whilst trying to look away, he returned to the companion steps. I'll let you do what you can with these in private, ma'am. I shall just go and arrange for a cab. We don't want to have to walk far without shoes. Don't leave me, she exclaimed. I shall go no further than the deck, I promise you. Call me as soon as you're ready. Once again, blushing red as a beetroot, Smith beat a tactical retreat. On reaching the deck, he called to the loitering docker to fetch a cab. Then, obliged to remain where he was for a few minutes, he surveyed the schooner more carefully. A Newcastle collier could not be more filthy and places bird droppings were thick beneath her spars. The sails were mildewed, shrouds frayed and rat lines rotted. It was hard to believe she had been actively sailing only days ago. He began to be concerned that there was no sound from below. Ah, uh, ma'am, he called gently down the companionway. Are you about ready to go? There was no reply. He began to worry she had fainted. Are you all right, ma'am? He called. Anxiety, conquering embarrassment, he began to descend the stairs. Can I be of any assistance? The forecastle was deserted. He looked again inside the cupboard. There was an axe and various other tools, but no damsel in distress. 
There was no other exit but the door to the head, not wishing to disturb a lady, at her ablutions, but still concerned for her welfare at length, he tapped upon that door. Uh, excuse me, ma'am? Are you in there? The door opened suddenly, bringing an astonished Smith face to face with a short, wizened, brown-skinned man who knuckled his forehead. Very good morning to you, Sahib. I think me Sahib is gone. What? How can she be gone? There's no other way out. And who the hell are you? How did you get here? Smith was confident the head had been empty before and there was no other access. Anjumar Das Gupta Sahid, I am cabin boy, the small man beamed. Cabin boy? The exclamation wrenched out of Smith. Despite his agitation, took his mind off the mystery of Gupta's arrival. The man was ancient. His dark skin was desiccated by exposure to sun, wind and spray, and there was far more grey than black in the long, straight hair tied up in an old-fashioned sailor's pigtail. Indeed, Sahib, I signed on board at fifteen years of age. Fifteen? Yes, Sahib. I knew my age exactly, because I was born on very same day Wellington Sahib beat that villain Boney at Waterloo. Oh, by golly, Sahib, it was first-class battle there, was it not? It certainly was, Gupta. Smith was clearly beset by lunatics. The sooner he got off this floating asylum, the better he would like it. Yet he could not leave the woman behind. But the Mem Sahib, where did she go? Who knows, Sahib? She has mystical powers. Sailors called her mermaid. But I think, with respect, she is evil Asura demon. Mermaid? Demon? What are you talking about, man? She's a defenceless woman, and I found her tied up in the sail locker. Yes, Sahib. Captain, he put her there after she killed first mate, Bevan Sahib, by breaking chair over his head. She had already broken out when Bevan Sahib clapped her in irons by crikey. Gupta, you're raving. She was barely able to stand. Exactly what we all thought when we took her aboard, Sahib, sitting on isolated rock near Seychelles, combing her hair and wearing not stitch of clothing, most improper, Sahib. I averted my gaze, but rest of sailors shouted in jest, thinking all set for jolly time. Oh, yes. She wasn't in a boat? Boat, Sahib? No. Sitting in rock. But miles from anywhere, Sahib, and hot sun enough to fry egg on deck. Oh, dear me. Yes, very hot. Smith was intrigued, in spite of himself. Wherever the woman had gone, there was little point in searching. Both the captain and Gupta agreed she had been on board since the Seychelles. Plenty of time to discover every rat run on this small ship. Surely she would re-emerge when she was realised she was safe. He turned back to the small man. You say you signed on in 1830, Gupta? Yes, Sahib. So... How many voyages have you made in Ananke, then? Oh, this is my first voyage, Sahib. I am thinking it very unlikely owners will want to be paying me for fifty years, though not my fault passage took so long. Smith found that hard to take, even from a madman. At least you know what year this is. Your captain seems not to. Because she made time move more quickly for him than me, Sahib. <clears throat> you see, I did not look at her whilst she was naked. Also, I am good Hindu. Smith shook his head in disbelief. Captain not knowing I am still aboard, Sahib. He believing I left with sailors in jolly boat. I am hiding myself in crow's nest since then, Sahib. Uh, are you? I, I mean, did you? I mean, why did the sailors leave? 
in fear of their lives, Sahib. She killed two, after which she ate them, completely raw, no cooking or anything. Very terrible, Sahib. Blood running everywhere across deck. They took fearfully long time dying. Smith swallowed harp. Gupta's graphic language made his flesh creep, but the tale was ludicrous. This small woman killed and ate two fully grown men. Honest truth, Sahib, with boning knife from Gali. This was too outrageous. Smith could not choke back his instinctive protest. But why did the other men not overpower her? They never saw murder, Sahib, all walking around as normal. I think perhaps I saw alone, because I was hiding. I was only fifteen, Sahib. The little man seemed pathetically anxious. Smith could not hold him responsible. Don't worry, Sahib, I'm not blaming you. Smith shook his head, undecided between disbelief and sympathy. So, though they did not know the cause, the crew knew that men were being lost? Exactly so, Sahib. When we reach Madagascar, some try to flee ship. But Great Wave overturned Jolly Boat, after which came many sharks and tearing them all in pieces. Terrible sight, Sahib. Sea red all around, men thrashing and screaming. And all this took place fifty years ago? Where on earth has the ship been? Do not ask me, Sahib. Sometimes in feverish, stagnant seas of weed. Other times raging heat, melting tar and deck seams. Everywhere scent of death. Set sails and furl themselves. Ships steer herself. Sometimes anchor drop. Then capstan's turn and haul in again and off we go. Nobody knowing where. Captain and Bevan Sahib try to fix her position, but I hear them say readings all crazy. One day North Atlantic, next day South China Sea, next Pacific Island where native girls dancing on beach calling to us. One or two sailors still left, then jump into sea and swim. But before he get halfway, Sahib, island just disappear. After which Ananke sail away and leave him to drown. And the other sailor, Gupta? Oh, Sahib, he most unfortunate man. Smith took a deep breath. The fate of the rest of the crew seemed bad enough. Ships cook, Sahib. When no food in galley, she forced Captain Bevan Sahib and him to be eating dead men. When nothing left, she cut off Cook's leg whilst he's still alive, and all ate that, after which an arm, then another leg, after which he died of loss of blood, Sahib, but sadly also quite insane. I imagine he was. Smith closed his eyes and then opened them again, avoiding the horrors that promptly assailed his brain, and when did this take place? Specific dates, alas, I cannot tell, Sahib, but I kept good record of days by carving notches and crow's nest. Very good knife, Sahib. Made in Sheffield, England. Still sharp. Not like rubbish foreign steel. Smith shook his head. If nothing else, the little madman was a loyal subject of Her Majesty. And I suppose the ship tied herself up here? No, no, Sahib. I cannot see because of fog, but I hear voice from dockside. Then Captain catching Azura by surprise and imprisoning her in forecastle. Since then, Sahib, you are first person aboard. The little man nodded vigorously. I don't understand. Why not go ashore? Why not make a run for it? Sahib, she already making sure appear and disappear once before. How could we know this real? And she have men on shore who work for her, paid in gold, I heard. 
I am thinking it prudent to wait for her to disembark first. Smith was about to concede the soundness of Gupta's logic when their conversation was interrupted by a terrible scream followed by a heavy thud. Leaving the startled Salinese where he stood, Smith flung himself up the companion stairs, gaining the deck in three bounds. At the top of the gangway lay the docker. He was propped against the bulwark in a sitting position, one hand clutching his throat. Blood was seeping through his vainly gasping fingers and running down the front of his smock. Good God, man, what's happened? cried Smith, rushing up to him. He could see at a glance the docker was dying. Woman, sir, the man choked, stark naked, sneaking up behind me. There was a strangled, bubbling sound from his throat. His head fell back, and he slid lifeless to the deck. Frantically, Smith looked around for help and found none. The woman was nowhere to be seen. When he glanced back to the companionway, he saw the top of Gupta's head as the little man peered in fright over the combing. Taking out his whistle, Smith blew three powerful blasts. Gupta, come here, man. Despite his terror, it was clear the last thing the little man would do was refuse an order from a personal representative of Queen Victoria. Bent almost double in hiding from unseen foes, he crept across the deck to where Smith crouched beside the dead docker. Down in the quay with you, right away, Smith instructed. I've summoned the river police. Take my whistle and blow it as loudly as you can. Three times, then wait, then three again. Keep blowing it until they come. I'm going to the captain's cabin. I must save him. Jolly good, Sahib, exactly as you say I shall do. Smith's heart pounded in his chest, and panic clawed at his insides. Was the frail woman he had untied really capable of murder? How could anyone gain from the sort of barbarism Gupta had described, and to sail a ship to London after a lapse of fifty years was surely the stuff of opium dreams, not any real world. Yet a corpse was pretty hard evidence. Captain Sawkins, Smith called out as he reached the berth deck. Captain Sawkins is Barrington Smith, sir. There's been a murder done on deck. Are you safe, sir? A shout and two shots rang out from behind the door of the captain's cabin, one ball penetrated the woodwork and ricocheted from the deck headlamp, shattering the glass. Smith flung himself to the deck. From within the great cabin echoed the sound of more glass smashing. He lay still, waiting for more shots. Belatedly, he recalled that the captain only had single-shot pistols. He sprang back to his feet and dragged open the door. A ghastly sight confronted him. Captain Sawkins had fallen backward into the shattered stern windows. The force with which he had flung himself against them, destroying the slender woodwork as well as the panes. From his chest protruded a curved sword, pinning him to the window sill among serrated shards of glass. His flesh was a shocking milk white, as though his body had been drained of its life blood. At his feet, broken open, was the jewel chest that he guarded so determinedly. Brightly coloured seashells were strewn across the deck. I owe you my thanks, Barrington Smith. A slurred drunken voice came from the sleeping quarters. With horror in his face, Smith turned to look at the woman as she emerged from within. Completely naked, she was covered in blood from head to foot. Her long hair so matted in gore that its original blonde could no longer be discerned. Yet, it was not her nakedness, but her eyes that held Smith's gaze. They burned with a fierce demonic flame of a certainty he knew he looked 
upon pure evil. Captain Sawkins was not entirely idle whilst I sailed his boat for him. The woman smiled mirthlessly, her body swaying, intoxicated with the blood she had consumed. Who would have thought such a stupid man had Hindu holy books aboard? He learned how to bind me in a way that only an innocent could undo. That was inconvenient. I'm grateful for your help. She giggled, as if it was a joke. Who? What are you? Smith whispered. Why are you doing all this? You mean you have not guessed? You are less intelligent than I thought. Did you not smell our cargo? It stinks like a charnel house. Very good. Just what it is. Corpses. Victims of infectious disease. Cholera. Bubonic plague. Yellow fever. Smallpox. All waiting in our holds. Rotting away. Ready to infect the whole of England. You're mad, Smith exclaimed. No! Purposeful! But the captain and mate learned of my plan and resolved to sacrifice themselves. They refused to go ashore. I needed some helpful person to come aboard, and you were thoughtful enough to summon the river police too. Again, a horrid chuckle. More than enough carriers to spread the pestilence everywhere. And then she began to laugh hysterically, her cheeks rising, her eyes narrowing, as she raised a hand to wipe tears of glee from her eyes. Smith sprang for the door and slammed it shut behind him. There is no escape, Mr. Smith, the inebriated laughter continued. Remember the cargo! Smith snatched open the door of the nearest cubbyhole, dragged out its sea chest and slammed it against the door of the captain's cabin. He fetched another, a flimsy barricade, but whilst the woman was drunk it might hold. He still thought that more likely she was more mad than a malevolent demon, but somehow he must check the cargo. In the galley he seized the cleaver and hammered it between the thin, rotting planks at the back of the larder cupboard. A small section broke away. Using the cleaver like a two-handed chisel, he smashed at the hole until it was big enough for him to see through into the hold. Only the dimmest of light filtered through the hatch covers above, but the little he could see of the cargo was more than enough. Rotting bodies were piled in great heaps. Hundreds upon thousands of foully stinking corpses pressed down upon decomposed and skeletal remains that swam in an oozing mass of near-liquid detritus in the bowels of the ship. The overpowering stench that flooded through the hole like escaping gas from a fractured pipe drove Smith back into the wardroom retching. Unbelievably, the woman's words were true. It made no difference whether she was human and utterly insane, or some sort of demon from the depths. He must get the ship away from London and into open water before anyone else came on board. Rushing back to the deck, he rang for the gangway, at the foot of which he found Gupta still blowing his whistle furiously. The river police were not yet in sight. Gupta! he cried. Yes, Sahib? Cast off astern as fast as you can, then come back aboard and unlash the gangway. Quickly, man! At once, Sahib! Smith remembered he had seen an axe among the clutter in the cupboard where he had first found the woman. So anxious was he to cut the cable at the bows that as he ran forward, he never once wondered what happened to the body he had left on deck. Not until the burly docker stepped up from the forehatch, holding the axe in his hands, 
his body still dripping gore. Well now, what's the hurry, Arbor Master? I told thee this were a plague ship, didn't I? Give ye a chance, I did. Smith checked his run. He stood for a moment, balanced on the balls of his feet, just out of reach. He liked my little trick with the ox blood from the slaughterhouse, did he? The grinning docker raised the axe above his head and advanced. He was off balance as he began to swing. Smith launched himself head first, straight into the man's exposed midriff. The docker collapsed in a heap with Smith Smith on top of him, the axe falling from his grasp as they tumbled to the deck and began to roll about, each furiously grappling for a hole. In less than a minute, the muscular docker had Smith from behind in a stranglehold and was kneeling on the deck, choking the life out of him. In a straight contest of strength, the bigger man would inevitably prevail. Can't say I didn't warn thee, Arbor Master, the man grunted in his efforts. But she pays well. A man has his expenses. Smith felt his windpipe constricting. As blackness threatened, he forced his way to his feet, and with all his might, heaved the pair of them backwards, the opposite of what the docker expected. Unable to see where the man was going, the man tripped on the fallen axe and lost his balance over the open companion hatch, releasing his grasp on Smith. Flailing his arms, he grabbed for the combing but missed, fell all the way to the forecastle and landed on his head. Smith heard the crack of the man's neck, breaking as he struggled to prevent himself from following. Are you all right, Sahib? Oh, by golly, this first-class adventure, is it not? Groggily, Smith turned and saw a delighted Gupta capering up and down. It is indeed, Smith gasped, shock and exertion combining to leave him hardly able to move. Quick, the bowhorser, cut the moorings, man. Right away, Sahib. Grasping the axe, Gupta sprang to the bows and swung mightily. In just moments, Smith felt Ananke take the current and begin to fall away downstream. Her speed increased by the wind billowing her badly furled sails. The gangplank collapsed with a crash into the water alongside. River police! Ahoy, Ananke! Who's aboard there? Show yourself! Smith struggled to his feet and swayed to the bulwark on unsteady legs. The police steam launch was alongside, keeping pace with the drifting schooner. Smith, he called. His voice was little more than a hoarse croak. Barrington Smith, harbour master's office. I'm ordering emergency quarantine of this ship. Infectious disease. I need her towed out of London. Can you heave me a line? That we can, Mr. Smith. Toby Swan, sir, you know me. I work for your uncle at Wapping Police Station. Good to see you, Constable Swan. With an overwhelming sense of relief, Smith stood there, holding on to the rail for dear life. When he'd lashed the wheel to prevent the schooner yawing on tow, Smith found his legs would support him no longer, and he sat down heavily on the deck. How best to deal with a Nanke and her pestilential cargo now he seemed to have control of her affairs? The vessel would never sail again. There could no longer be any insurance interest in the craft long since given up for lost, yet to burn her would risk wreck drifting ashore. To tow her out to sea would require more power and range than the little steam launch possessed. The safest course was to scuttle an anke somewhere near the Noor and deep water never to be uncovered by low tides or present a danger to navigation. No infection could survive immersion in salt water. The launch could take off the crew of the Noor lightship. He and Gupta could be quarantined there until all danger of infection was past. Whether they would be alive or dead would be as fate would have it. But before that, they had one problem to address. She's still down there, Gupta. She seems drunk, but she's dangerous. 
I have to go back and retie her. With greatest respect, Sahib, you are not well enough. Can't even walk so far. Gupta shall go. I can't let you do that. We'll both go. No, Sahib, forgive me, but I understand these things. I gave holy books to Captain Sahib, ones he used to tie her up using good magic. Even in his befuddled state, Smith found this hard to square with Gupta's claim that he had been hiding. The mystery of the little man's unexplained first appearance came back to his mind. She will not kill me, Sahib. You will see. I am good Hindu. You rest. Need all your strength to scuttle ship and row to light ship. Tide rip strong here, Sahib. As Smith made to rise, the firm pressure of Gupta's hands pressed him back into a sitting position on the deck. The little man was stronger than he looked. How did he come to be familiar with Smith's unspoken plans? Or with the tides off the Noor? Gupta went aft and descended into the companionway. As he disappeared, a surge of remorse swept over Smith. Weak though he was, he could not let the Ceylonese go alone. He struggled to his feet, staggered the length of the ship, and fell again. When he finally slid down the companion stairs, he saw the sea chests had been dragged inside. The cabin door stood open. At that moment, a flash of brilliant light flooded out of the cabin, and a sound like a thunderclap left Smith dazzled and stunned. By the time he recovered his senses and entered the cabin, neither Gupta nor the demon were anywhere to be seen. On all sides the woodwork was scorched, as though by a fiery explosion, though nothing was even left smouldering. Abel Sawkins' body had been freed from the windowsill and lowered carefully to the deck. The last captain of the Ananke could go down with his ship. Smith peered hesitantly into the sleeping compartment. Nothing. He went back and checked the wardroom in the galley. There was no one there. Back in the wardroom, he noticed a book lying open on the table. It had not been there on the first visit. He picked it up. It was an English translation of a Hindu holy book. A passage was marked. The Azura are of two kinds, good and evil, invariably appear together, equal and opposite in form though not necessarily at the same time. Eventually, they neutralise each other, after which balance in the world is restored. Smith sank, exhausted, on the chair that was set back against the hull. He dropped the book into his lap, leaned his head against the old timbers and listened to the waters of the Thames gurgling by a few feet away. It would be a while before they reached the Noor. In the stillness he recalled the little man's words, after which she ate them, after which came many sharks, after which I am hiding myself. He shook his head ruefully, Azura. He had never heard of them before, with one exception. He didn't care if he never heard of them again. Gupta, he said aloud, whatever you are, wherever you are, Her Imperial Britannic Majesty thanks you. He smiled. Oh, by golly, Gupta, that was a first-class struggle, was it not? 
it was indeed. wretches, every one of them. People forget, mm, yes, they forget the very first mermaid story. The sirens lured the sailors in and they dashed them against the rocks. Yes, I've never met one. Have you? No. Well, I am certain they exist. But that is the story for another evening. It is time for us to close. Do come visit again next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 Attribution No Derivatives License. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Give us some reviews on iTunes. And if you're feeling generous, make a donation so we can buy more stories. Our authors deserve a better rate. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by DEVM. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.